Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Somebody asked me recently if I thought that this time we are living through will be as significant or as profoundly influential as the 60s. I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is that there are recurring themes from that period that we seem to be relitigating and reliving. Race is certainly one, but our renewed discussion about Vietnam and also the real threat of nuclear war are the two most profound. My guest, Daniel Ellsberg, was at the center of these issues in the 60s and is still here to provide his wisdom and insights into the way that history may be repeating itself. It is no accident that both the Ken Burns documentary about Vietnam, which conspicuously did not include a conversation with Ellsberg, and the upcoming Steven Spielberg movie, The Post, have once again catapulted him to the front of our national dialogue. Most of us know Daniel Ellsberg for the Pentagon Papers, which he copied and leaked in 1971, and which played a significant role in shaping public opinion toward a withdrawal from Vietnam and ultimately the end of the war. What we might forget or may not have known is that Ellsberg was at the time one of the foremost war planners, a nuclear strategist, and one of the leading thinkers of the time about the role and actual use of nuclear weapons. Now, after all these years, He's written about this in his new book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear Planner. It is my pleasure to welcome Daniel Ellsberg here to Radio Who, What, Why. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I want to begin by talking a little bit about how you came to RAND, because it was really your credentials and your work in this nuclear policy area and and strategic thinking and the theories of the time that brought you to RAND. It was my interest in a field, a theoretical field of economics called decision theory, how people would or should make decisions in the face of great uncertainty when they didn't really know for sure the consequences of their actions. And Rand was doing a lot of study of uh, I discovered that they were looking at the possibility the uncertain possibility of a Soviet surprise attack on the United States. All the people in the economics division that I joined at Rand were working night and day, really, trying to avert a Soviet surprise attack from what were supposed to be, in terms of top-secret estimates, uh, an overwhelming number of uh, Soviet missiles compared to what we had, and one that could practically uh, devastate our ability to retaliate, and thus uh, we would lose deterrence and an attack might occur. The because of my interest in decision theory, I focused on a particular problem, which is how would the president decide when it was time to get planes off the ground or even missiles, which can't be returned once they're launched, uh, in the face of warning of an attack from our very extensive radar systems and what came to be satellite reconnaissance systems and infrared which might indicate that an attack was coming, but would not do so with certainty. They were subject to false alarms, even a flock of geese at one point, uh, believe it or not, or radar bouncing off the moon more strongly than anyone had expected, and indicating that an attack was coming with high certainty at a time when no attack was coming. So how in the face of the fact that uh, the president wouldn't know for sure whether we were under attack, might he decide that he had to get his missiles or planes off the ground and use them before we lost them. That is still here, actually. That that problem still exists with our land-based missiles, our vulnerable intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBMs, 
because, uh, again, it's a use-them-or-lose-them situation. The Russians, like ourselves, can target such missiles and hit them with high accuracy and, uh, and deprive the adversary of that capability for retaliation. So there still is a launch-on-warning uh, readiness, actually, which could trigger an all-out nuclear war in a situation where uh, it was really based on false electronic warning. It's a, it's a dangerous situation, and it always has been. The, the other part of it that seems just as dangerous that you write about is not only the uncertainty in terms of the decisions themselves, but the ambiguity with respect to the command and control within this system. Well, who, who, in other words, could launch these weapons? Is it only the president? The public has always been led to believe, and is being led to believe right now, quite uh, falsely, that only the president can launch those weapons with the authority to do it. Now, it's worrying the public to think about that because they're looking at the man with his, metaphorically, his finger on the button here as being somewhat unbalanced, the president. So the idea that Donald J. Trump can launch those forces is something that's worrying people a lot, and rightly so, actually. But where they're mistaken is to think that only the president can launch them. That's never been true, because if that were true, uh, an adversary like the Russians or even a terrorist of some court um, could paralyze our entire nuclear capability simply with one explosion on uh, Washington, or strictly speaking, even one bullet, as uh, as hit Ronald Reagan and put the question of command there in some question there for a while, with uh, Secretary of State Haig asserting, don't worry, I'm in command, and he wasn't, actually. But uh, who was? And the answer is that when it comes to an ability to launch the weapons, and even to do it, uh, in the belief that you're authorized to do it because Washington may have been hit, that ability is rather widely diffused. Uh, how widely? Uh, I don't know right now, and the president did not know in the Cold War years because he delegated, starting with Eisenhower, that authority to a number of high-level theater commanders, as in the Pacific or Strategic Air Command, but they in turn delegated uh, that power for the same reason, that they might be hit, the communications might be out, and uh, we had to have, in their eyes, an, an ability to attack in face of that. So the system has always been looser and more diffuse in terms of control than the public has ever imagined. You mentioned in the book, in fact, that, that in fact Kennedy and his people were quite surprised at how widespread the control was from Eisenhower. They were. In fact, I reported that uh, as a result of my work for Commander-in-Chief Pacific, SYNCPAC, Admiral Harry Felt, in the Pacific, and I had found that to be true, and I reported it to McGeorge Bundy, the assistant to the President Kennedy for national security, and he was very shocked uh, to, to realize this, but somewhat to my surprise, chose Kennedy chose to continue that delegation rather than to appear to reverse the decision of the great commander, his predecessor, uh, Eisenhower, and uh, did not even do anything to stop the sub-delegation, the further delegation that had so worried me. That remained true for uh, his successors. For Johnson, even though it was a major issue in the campaign of 1964, uh, his opponent, a retire, a reserve uh, 
Air Force General Goldwater uh, was really reflecting the attitudes of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and of the Air Force when he called publicly for this delegation to occur, and for uh, commanders in Europe even to be able to use what he called their tactical weapons without uh, worrying about any authorization, whether communications were in or not. Well, that led to a great concern about Goldwater. In fact, that was the first instance in which a lot of psychiatrists um, test, uh, gave uh, their opinion in groups that Goldwater was unstable and was not uh, partly because of his his uh, readiness to use nuclear weapons and for other reasons. And that led to the Goldwater rule that psychiatrists should not publicly diagnose figures they had not personally interviewed or uh, uh, observed, and uh, that Goldwater rule is being violated right now by a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists because they're worried about Donald Trump, and they feel the president has to be warned. But as I say, uh, the public has to be warned. But um, uh, going back to that, uh, it was also continued by Nixon and by his successors throughout the Cold War. And undoubtedly, although I don't know directly, but undoubtedly there is a great deal of delegation and violation of rules, such as two-man rules that assure that no decision will be made about nuclear weapons without the participation of at least two people. Well, that rule applied back in the late 50s and the early 60s and was violated everywhere, everywhere I found. Uh, it was possible for one person to do that. And I suspect that's true today. But Congress should find out whether it's true, and they never have. I want to go back and talk a little bit about some of the, the papers about all of this that you were able to copy and took with you out of RAND that were sort of a subset of the Pentagon Papers that you chose not to release at the time. And talk a little bit about the story about what happened to those papers. My notes and studies that I had in my top secret safe in my office at RAND, which I was authorized to have, having to do with all the work I'd done on nuclear command and control and nuclear war planning. And I had concluded that all of this should be out. It was historical by that time. It wasn't about current plans or current procedures, except to the extent that those uh, failures of procedure and violations still applied. And that's always been true. But that's why I wanted to get it out, to assure people that uh, they really should press Congress to investigate this with subpoenas and with whistleblowers and to get a grip on a system that was largely out of control. So the same was true in Vietnam, but I did expect uh, to put the material out on Vietnam, the Pentagon Papers, the historical study, out first, because that's where the bombs were falling at that time, and I wanted to help uh, encourage the public to shorten that process. And I expected to put the other material out after I had faced trial, as I did mm -hmm. on the Pentagon Papers. That was uh, subjected me to a possible 115 years in prison. But assuming that I would be able to uh, delegate, authorize uh, others where I'd stored these other papers to put them out, even if I were in prison, uh, that uh, I thought I would do that out afterwards, after the Pentagon Papers had had their effect on the war, whatever that was. In fact, though, I gave them to my brother, who ultimately, not to go through the whole story here, buried them in a trash dump in Terrytown, uh, New York, 
and inside a box in a garbage bag, and all the copies were in that same box. And unfortunately, a tropical storm, Doria, a small hurricane, hit the area at that point, dispersed all the land where the stuff was buried, including the markers he'd put to indicate where it was. And he was never able to find it, despite a year and a half or more of efforts on weekends to recover that box. So to my great anguish, uh, when by the time the trial ended, with the because of uh, White House crimes against me, actually, which eventually faced Nixon with impeachment and uh, led to his resignation, and that made the war endable, uh, at that point... I really turned my attention to whether it really was unrecoverable, and it turned out to be yes. It was it was just impossible to get those documents. So what we have here is the substance of that material based on notes that were not lost, and my memory at the time. I wrote a great deal of uh, memos at the time and transcripts of uh, for my lawyers, in fact, of all this other material, and that's reflected in my current book. Talk a little bit about the strategy at the time, and you talked about it a moment ago, about this effort to deter the the Soviet Union, and the serious conversations that used to take place, as they did in the movie Dr. Strangelove, from which the title of this book comes, about literally talking about first strike and 400 million people being killed, etc. The plan at that time, and really ever since the predominant shape of the planning for our use of nuclear weapons was to initiate their use, not as the public supposed or was told to retaliate to a an attack on our own weapons or on our, our own country. As of 1961, which is several years after I started on the problem, it, it turned out that there was essentially no chance of a Soviet surprise attack. They didn't have the weapons for it. Instead of hundreds or even a thousand ICBMs, they turned out in 1961 to have four. No capability. They had not bought a capability to attack the United States. So that wasn't the problem. But meanwhile, uh, all this time, our Strategic Air Command had been oriented toward an attack on the Soviet Union, not out of the blue, not a Pearl Harbor attack, uh, but not a preventive war, in other words, but an attack that would arise out of a local conflict in Europe, as in Berlin, or an uprising in the satellites in which NATO intervened in some way, which quickly escalated by U.S. initiative to an attack to disarm the Soviet Union. Uh, and essentially destroy their society. A first strike then, as I say, not a preventive war, but either an escalation of a conflict that was non-nuclear to start with, or preemption, Uh, as some people put it, striking second first, meaning in the belief that an attack either was imminent from a defector of some kind or some kind of intelligence we had over there, or what I said earlier, the indications from our warning systems that an attack was underway but hadn't yet, uh, no warheads had yet reached their targets in our country, we would get our weapons off the ground and go over there and attack what ICBMs they might still have in their silos and hadn't gotten out or their submarine ports, their command and control and whatnot. In other words, what was called a preemptive attack, which again would be first. It would be uh, our launching 
irreversibly weapons before any weapons had actually exploded in this country. And the next question you raised was, well, what would the consequences of that be? What the Joint Chiefs contemplated in early 61 was that our own first strike arising, let's say, over uh, Berlin, a new Berlin blockade uh, in 61, which was threatened, that the consequence would be killing 600 million people, a hundred holocausts, as I saw it in, in horror when I saw their estimate. Uh, and that was a, a clearly a great underestimate because it didn't even allow for fire as a calculation. They felt that was too hard to predict where the winds would be and where the, how flammable the materials would be. So they didn't put that into their consequences. And that was the major effect of uh, thermonuclear weapons. So uh, the casualties would have been well beyond that. And added to that would be the Russian retaliation, which would certainly annihilate Europe, uh, whatever it would have been against the U.S. So we're talking about a deliberate plan on our part to kill several hundred million people in the USSR and China alone. But then another hundred million in what we call the satellite countries, the so-called captive nations uh, in East Europe that are now part of NATO. And that wouldn't exist had a war occurred. And about a hundred million in our allies, uh, NATO, Western Europe, due to fallout from the radioactivity, and the fallout from our attacks elsewhere to the east. So our uh, our allies would be annihilated essentially by our own attacks without even a single warhead landing over there. It was the most insane and immoral plan that had ever been conceived, I would say, in the history of our species. And at the same time, it, it allowed, by the way, for no reserves, uh, no control once the goal button was pushed, no stop order, no ability to call anybody back whether or not the president wanted to limit the war or the other side surrendered. There was no way to get a surrender. Moscow and the other command centers would be struck at the very outset. Uh, moreover, under any conflict with Russian troops anywhere, whether it was in uh, Yugoslavia or Iran or Berlin, would lead to our hitting every city in China, as well as every city in Russia. When I say it was an insane, an insanely destructive plan, uh, that's what I'm describing. And this was before even the idea of, of nuclear winter was understood, which would have killed hundreds of millions more. Exactly so. It was another 20 years or more in 1983 when scientists, uh, including Carl Sagan and others, Brian Toon, Turco, uh, a number of others, calculated that the effects of these attacks, in especially the fire they would cause, would um, loft smoke in a very high updrafts caused by firestorms, uh, which in turn were caused by the nuclear weapons. It would loft this smoke into the stratosphere where it wouldn't rain out and where it would quickly go around the earth. And we're talking now about more than 100 million tons of smoke and soot from these burning cities. That would block sunlight uh, to the extent of about 70% of the sunlight worldwide, killing all the harvests and much of the vegetation and the animals that depend on vegetation, including us. So 
they would all starve within a matter of months or a year. Uh, not right away, uh, but there's about 60 days of food supplies in the world for the world population. A lot of it concentrated in a few countries, including our own. So we'd last a little longer in terms of months, in terms of eating, uh, before we starved. And the effect, in other words, was that whether you went first or second, the effect would be the same, essentially, our own attacks, or the Russians' own attacks when they acquired a similar capability in the mid-60s. They, too, got what could be called a doomsday machine, a system that would destroy nearly all humanity and, and make extinct, by the way, uh, totally, uh, nearly every other large animal, larger than a squirrel, let's say. Uh, the Earth would be denuded of... Uh, much most complex life, animal life, and the vegetation. And that is true to this day. Uh, Russia and the U.S., despite having reduced their forces by some 80% or more, still have on alert, on a readiness posture, a hair-trigger alert, capable of being triggered uh, by an expectation of the other side uh, attacking or the false alarm of a sort that has occurred a number of times, a false alarm. Uh, most recently that we know of in Russia, actually, after the Cold War, where uh, Yeltsin was actually poised over his apparatus, his button, uh, being urged to push it by uh, people in response to what was actually a weather rocket from Norway uh, that had been mistaken for a rocket heading for, for Moscow. So the world's survival, not the world's survival, but humanity's survival, the earth will go on, but without us, uh, is actually poised on this um, hair trigger possibility that inexcusably has persisted for the last 30 years after the cold, even after the cold war, and really was never justified, ever. It's been uh, this existence of doomsday machines was never justifiable, but uh, combinations of inertia and industry, military-industrial complex uh, priorities in terms of building weapons, profits, jobs, employment, on both sides now. Remember that Russia is now a capitalist country and has much the same incentives to uh, build these weapons as our corporations do, like Lockheed and others. And uh, that has kept these, these systems still in operation, threatening us all. And it's interesting that some of the conversations that we hear today with respect to North Korea are not that dissimilar from the conversations that you talk about that went on during Berlin. The Joint Chiefs talked to Kennedy about, we'll only kill 10 million people over there. Yeah, well, yes, that's a, a macabre aspect, which is being repeated in effect. When I said in 61 that the Russians... The Soviets had only four ICBMs that could reach the United States. They also had some submarines with some cruise missiles that could reach the United States and even nuclear torpedoes. But uh, the Joint Chiefs, I believe, did know that reality more than they admitted. They were claiming, in order to get more weapons themselves, especially the Air Force, that the Russians had a lot more than they did. But I think they knew the reality, and as a result, they were assuring President Kennedy that in an in an all-out nuclear war over Berlin, which was a Berlin crisis that year, uh, the United States would lose no more than 10 million. Well, that was enough to uh, 
inhibits quite a bit are then President uh, Kennedy, much more than it did them, and apparently. But what they were saying, though, was the casualties will be over there, the bulk of them. Uh, the uh, actual, actually, there might not have been any casualties at all in this country if we, uh, the ICBMs would be theirs would be destroyed very easily. Uh, there might not be any submarines uh, capable of doing it, which would be the main danger. But Europe would be destroyed by our own attacks and again by their attacks directly a little sooner than the fallout would reach them. Their medium-range missiles and short-range aircraft and whatnot would annihilate our allies. Now we're hearing from Senator Lindsey Graham an assurance that if we get to war with North Korea, which could happen any time shortly, uh, the casualties would be over there. That's a direct quote. The casualties, thousands, he said, and actually hundreds of thousands to millions would be a better estimate, will be all over there, he said. And, you know, sad as that is, the uh, president has to think about Americans and so forth. Uh, macabre observations and not even reliable, because to get back to uh, what I was saying earlier, we can't be paralyzed, nor can the Russians be paralyzed in our retaliatory capability by one or more bombs on our command and control, on our leaders, on our uh, command centers. Uh, that will not paralyze our retaliation, even though we each plan to do it to the other uh, for not obvious reasons of rationality, but, you know, got to do something in a war, so that's what they do. Almost certainly North Korea has made comparable provisions in case plans are carried out, as were just described by uh, Rex Tillerson, actually, just this last week, our Secretary of State, for uh, special forces teams or drones or cruise missiles assassinating the central leaders of the North Korean system. Uh, what is the assumption that uh, Kim has not made the kind of provisions we've made to assure that there will be major retaliation in case he's killed or put out of action? Uh, almost surely he has done that. And it would not necessarily be all over there either. Uh, he doesn't have ICBMs, and we're, we're trying to prevent that. Uh, it would be much better to do it by negotiation than by an attack. But... He doesn't need an ICBM to make casualties in the United States. He has warheads. North Korea is a nuclear state now, uh, unlike the, most of the other occasions when the U.S. president has made nuclear threats. This is the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis when a president has made direct threats of attack against a nuclear weapon state, as Korea is. Now, he can put any number of those warheads, and he has somewhere between 20 and 60, uh, he can put them on a boat, and it won't get here in 30 minutes like an ICBM, but it won't take 30 days to get a container on a boat or a ship, a perhaps radio-controlled boat, uh, certainly radio-controlled warhead, into a harbor in a west coast like San Francisco or Los Angeles, or conceivably in a, in a container uh, inside the country and cause not nuclear winter, but more casualties than the world has seen ever in a week or a day. Uh, even without getting it to the United States, 
North Koreans have an ability to cause millions of casualties, deaths, in South Korea and Japan right away. And we've admittedly no, no capability of, of destroying all that capability in a surprise attack. Uh, or, or sustained attack. In fact, to get all of them, our military leaders have said we'll take a ground invasion of North Korea again, uh, as, like over 50 years ago, and uh, uh, that would be a long, a long process. So the idea, uh, the threat of going to war with North Korea over its nuclear program, is a threat of a, of a mad action. It's not one that will exterminate all humanity, but it will exterminate uh, hundreds of thousands to millions of people. You know, a scale of only one to a thousand of a war with Russia, but uh, as I say, more rapidly annihilating people than we've ever seen in human history. Finally, what is your sense? if anything that has changed in terms of military planning and how military planners and nuclear war planners today look at this as opposed to the way they did in the 50s and 60s? Well, I have to say right away that uh, obviously I don't have the direct knowledge of this that I did have in the 60s. Uh, and I don't know whether any outsider to the executive branch does. I'm virtually sure that Congress does not. They never have in the past. And what I am saying is that this entire history of terrible decision-making guarded by secrecy, uh, which has preserved basically insane plans, plans for blowing up the world uh, over uh, an issue, whether it's... Uh, important, like as Berlin was relatively important, or West Germany, or not so important, uh, the fact remains that it's never been justified to be deploying and threatening these doomsday machines. Well, that's gone on under the veil of secrecy, unchallenged by Congress, which is, as far as I know, and I knew it during that earlier period, was never even to get any detailed briefing, even in classified hearings on the targets or the plans, the readiness, the command and control. There was, by the way, was just a um, command and control hearing for the first time in since 1976, I think, uh, one in which uh, I was peripherally involved. And uh, after the hearing, first one, this is the second hearing on command and control, which, like the first one, got almost no information about the actual situation. It's all secret. Congress couldn't get it. Uh, how many can control, who controls, how would it work, and so forth. I am saying then that a need that has persisted all this year is for all these years is for, not that Congress is you know, deserves all that trust, but it's at least a separate look uh, at, at the system and could do an actual investigation of this. And, you know, as I say this, the chance of getting this out of the current Congress, the Republican Congress, uh, from a Republican president, is pretty close to nil. To me, that puts a good deal of uh, emphasis on the need to change this Congress. And it's not enough just to get Democrats in. They didn't look into this either. Uh, it'll have to be Democrats of a different breed than we've seen in the past, along with some Republicans, and they have to be pressed by the public. 
So I'm hoping that this book will contribute to a concern about this that the subject deserves, a concern like the climate problem, which has led to a lot of discussion and concern and not much action so far, I have to admit. But I think it's a first step. We have to recognize that there's not just one existential threat to civilization, that's climate. There are two, at least, and the nuclear one has always been there. And what's so harrowing about this, particularly what what one comes away with after reading The Doomsday Machine, is that given the nature of all of this, that nothing has happened so far. Well, as I said, they've they've changed the numbers of weapons, but the numbers were so extraordinarily uh, excessive in the past that you could reduce them by a great amount and not really change the basic problem at all. And that's that's what has happened. Uh, we still have on air trigger, as I say, far more than enough weapons on both sides. And we're both renewing them, uh, as are other countries renewing and rebuilding their much smaller systems. Um, the U.S. and Russia each plan to spell, uh, spend something like a trillion dollars over the next three years rebuilding their doomsday machines, systems that shouldn't exist at all. And uh, we would be safer if we got rid of our vulnerable ICBMs, for example, and most of our sub-launch missiles. The Russians would be safer if they did that unilaterally. But uh, we shouldn't wait for them to do it. Uh, this, this should have happened long ago, and it should happen now. Is it likely? No, it's unlikely to happen. Uh, we're unlikely to survive this. But it's possible. It is possible, and that's the possibility that I'm hoping to. I'm hoping to enlarge. Daniel Ellsberg, the Doomsday Machine: Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. Daniel, I thank you so much for spending time with us here on Radio Who, What, Why. Well, thank you. Very good questions. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.